Hi everyone. I trust that you are well. I trust that you've had a good week. I know that this time of lockdown has been such a long one for many of you. We come to the first anniversary of lockdown in South Africa this week. Maybe you're sat alone again today. I want you to know that as a church, we're thinking of you. We're praying for you. We're missing you. We love you. Even if you're not part of the Pinelands Baptist Church, we're thinking of you and praying for you today and glad that you can join us in this way. This morning we continue with our series, Habits for Wholeness, Spiritual Disciplines. Last week we had a look at Bible reading and we had a look at why we read the Bible We saw that the Bible is not merely a historical book, but it is God's revelation of himself and his plan of salvation. It is the very word of God, and it is the power of God in our lives. I don't know about you, but just thinking about the Bible in that way, as the very word of God breathed out to me, makes me want to go away and read it. But reading the Bible isn't always straightforward or even easy. And so today I'd like us to have a look at how to read the Bible. Uh, Please note then that this isn't a sermon. A sermon seeks to take a passage of scripture and explain it and apply it to our lives. This is more of a message or even a lecture. It's really the application of what we looked at last week. I'd like to arrange my thoughts under three broad headings. Where to start, some tools of the trade, and the most important element. Firstly then, where to start. The Bible is a big book. Well, 66 books, actually. It's quite large and it can feel quite intimidating. But actually, if you were to listen to an audio recording of the entire Bible, you could do so in about 72 hours. Most audio recordings of the Bible are around 72 hours in length. That's three straight days. Some of us spend that much time watching television a month. So don't be too intimidated. I think it's worthwhile to commit ourselves to reading through the entire Bible, Not necessarily in three straight days, although I have heard of youth groups that do that from time to time, but to regularly work our way through the entire Bible, whether that's over a period of months or years, because it really is the very word of God to us. I think that one of the difficulties that people have is that they often start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, and try to read all the way through. As Donald Whitney points out in his book on spiritual disciplines, many who intend to read straight from Genesis through the Bible become confused in Leviticus, discouraged in Numbers, and give up completely by Deuteronomy. The secret to overcoming that difficulty is to get some variety by starting in different places at the same time. Again, Donald Whitney shares his method for this. My favourite plan involves reading in five places each day. I begin in Genesis, the law, then Joshua, history, Job, which is poetry, Isaiah, the prophets, and Matthew, 
the New Testament and read an equal number of chapters in each section. A simpler variation of this is to read in three places every day, starting in Genesis, Job and Matthew. The three sections are roughly the same in length, so you'll finish them all about the same time. If you have the money to invest, you could buy yourself a one-year Bible, which divides the Bible up into 365 daily Bible readings. Or you could go online and find the one-year Bible reading program, which would give you the daily sections to read each day. Speaking of online, there's a wonderful app that you can get on your phone called the U version of the Bible. It includes the Bible in various translations, and it includes hundreds of Bible reading plans. Now, some of those consist of a daily reading with a bit of a devotional, and some of those include a Bible in a Year program, or the Bible in Two Years, or the New Testament in a Year, or the Old Testament in a Year. Having an app on your phone can be a really great way of getting through the Bible. You could start with reading just one book of the Bible, perhaps one of the Gospels, and then move on to another book, and maybe tick off the books you've read in the Table of Contents section of your Bible. But do commit yourself to reading the entire Bible, whether that's over a year or two years. Make it your aim to get through the whole Bible on a regular basis. And again, the reason for that is that this is God's Word. The most obscure passage in the book of Nahum is powerful and effective in a way that no other human word could ever be, because Nahum is the very word of God. Wherever you start, I think it's important to have a system, because it helps in the whole aspect of God's guidance. If I only open up the Bible sporadically and randomly, then when I read something significant, it's easy to dismiss that as just being a coincidence. But when I'm reading the Bible systematically on a daily basis and I read something significant, then I can have greater confidence that God is speaking to me through his word. Do try to make this a daily habit. Most of us regularly get eight hours of sleep. We drink water through the day, take regular exercise. We have daily meals. Remember the words of Jesus that we looked at last week from Matthew chapter 4. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Bible reading then should be our regular practice. Secondly, let me talk about some basic tools that can help us to read the Bible. I've already mentioned the one-year Bible and the version Bible app. Some people say, I don't need anything to help me read the Bible. I can just pick it up and read it and rely on the Holy Spirit to lead me. And to a certain extent, that is completely true. Anyone can pick up God's Word and read it and come to salvation through it and continue to grow in their Christian life through it. For most of us, our difficulties with the Bible don't lie in the area of understanding anyway, but rather in the area of obedience. Our main problem, I believe, is not that we don't understand the Bible, but that we don't consistently apply the Bible to our everyday lives. So, yes, we can pick up the Bible and read it and understand it on our own, 
but there is great value in reading it thoughtfully and carefully and using the gifts of others in the church to help us in that process. Remember my illustration from a few weeks ago about a young man called John, who in high school hated French and dropped it as a subject as quickly as possible, but later went back to his garage and quickly dusted off his high school textbooks, madly started studying French after meeting Antoinette, a French exchange student at university. Imagine for a moment that you are John, and after a few weeks of getting to know Antoinette, you realise that she really does like you, and that impression is confirmed when she writes you a ten-page letter expressing some of her feelings for you. The letter, however, is in French. I think it's true to say that you would probably spend some time studying the letter and you would get some outside help in trying to understand it. You might use a French-English dictionary, or if you're technically inclined, you might try your hand at Google Translate. You would quickly recognise, though, that Google Translate is not particularly helpful as it gives a word-for-word translation. Antoinette says that she has a lightning bolt for you. What in the world does that mean? You would need a French-speaking person to tell you that that is a French idiom, similar to our English expression, falling head over heels in love. They might also tell you that the meaning of a word in a love letter is vastly different from the meaning of that same word in a legal document. You would need a French speaker who would be able to explain some of the more difficult words in the letter, and give some of the cultural background. And in the same way, having the Bible as God's word to me means that it needs my utmost care and attention, and even study. And God has gifted his church with Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic scholars and linguists and archaeologists and Bible historians who can explain the words, can explain the idioms, can explain some of the cultural background that helps us to understand the Bible more fully. So to take just one example, in Genesis chapter 15, we read how God reaffirms his promise to Abraham, I will give you a son, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky, I will give you a land of your own. And Abraham says, Lord, how can I know that what you are saying will come true? And we read, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Now, just by reading the text, we can gather from the passage that God is in some way reaffirming his promise to Abraham. But the passage becomes ever so much more meaningful when you understand some of the cultural background how a covenant was made in the ancient Near East. When a king took over a country, the king he had conquered would become his vassal, and conquering kings would make treaties or covenants with their vassals. 
the king might demand a certain amount of grain and wine and oil per month from his vassal. He might demand the total loyalty of his vassal and a promise from him not to be involved in any act of rebellion. In return, the conquering king would promise to protect the vassal's territory and to come to his aid in times of crisis. The two kings would draw up a treaty or a covenant, and then they would kill some animals, and they would cut the animals in half. And sometimes both parties, but usually just the lesser party, the defeated king, would walk between the pieces of the animal, and in doing that, the defeated king was saying, May what has happened to these animals happen to me, if I do not keep the terms of our covenant. Do you see the amazing condescension of God in Genesis chapter 15 then? God himself says in effect to Abraham, May what has happened to these animals happen to me if my promise to you in terms of a son and descendants and land doesn't come true. And Abraham doesn't have to pass through the pieces. It's not the lesser party, but the greater party, God himself, who passes through those pieces. And that picture of God's condescension prefigures a much greater condescension that took place when Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, of course, you can read Genesis 15 in your room on your own and be blessed by God through it. But there is a depth and a richness here that you won't necessarily get without the help of Christian brothers and sisters who've studied God's word and whose written resources are there to help us. This is a little bit like what happens when you listen to a good sermon, but the tools that I'm going to mention allow you to do the job yourself. So, what are some of the basic tools that can aid us in reading the Bible? Well, firstly, it's important to get yourself a good translation. Let me spend a fair bit of time on this because I think it's important. It's worthwhile remembering that if you're not reading the Bible in Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek, then to a certain extent you are already reading an interpretation of the Bible. That's not a problem because Bible societies use teams of the very best scholars over decades to come up with the best possible translation. And Bible translations normally describe some of this process in the introductory pages of their edition of the Bible. So, for example, a team of a hundred translators worked from 1965 to 1978 to give us the new international version. If you go onto their website, you can read about the careful and vigorous translation process. Let me read a section of that to you. First, each book of the Bible was assigned to a translation team consisting of two lead translators, two translation consultants and one English style consultant. Then another team of five Bible scholars reviewed their work, carefully comparing it to the original biblical text and assessing its readability. 
From there, each book went to a general committee of eight to twelve scholars. As part of the final review, outside critics gave feedback. Samples were tested with pastors, students and lay people. Perhaps no other Bible translation has gone through a more thorough process to ensure accuracy and readability. Similarly, the New Living Translation used over 90 scholars in their translation process. When it comes to Bible translations, there are really two broad categories. You get formal equivalence translations and dynamic equivalent translations. Imagine you were at a party with an American friend and your host were to say, No chanons brai. And your American friend asked you, what did he just say? You would have two options. A formal equivalence translation, now going we barbecue, or a dynamic equivalent translation. He is about to light a fire in his back garden and roast some meat over it, and it's going to be lacquer, which would lead to another interpretive conversation. In formal equivalence translations, translators attempt to translate each word in the original language into an equivalent English word. This can even mean using the same word order as the original language. The American Standard Version and the English Standard Version are formal equivalent versions. So, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1 in the English Standard Version reads as follows, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Even formal equivalent versions, though, can't always do a precise word-for-word translation that makes sense. So, for example, when the New Testament speaks of people who were sick, the literal reading of the Greek text is having it badly. So a literal reading of Matthew chapter 4 and verse 24 would be, and they brought to Jesus all the ones having it badly with various diseases and torments. The English Standard Version speaks about those afflicted with various diseases. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, the English Standard Version says that Mary was with child. A literal reading of the text says that she was having it in the stomach. Even the most literal translation has to make allowances for Greek idioms. The advantage of a literal translation is that it allows the reader to interpret the scriptures for themselves. The disadvantage of a literal translation is that it allows the reader to interpret the scriptures for themselves. So, for example, the English Standard Version of Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus was in the form of God. Now, that could easily lead a reader to think that Jesus looked like God but wasn't. The more dynamic translations make the sense of the Greek expression a little clearer by saying, in very nature, God. Another difficulty with a more literal translation is that it isn't always reader-friendly. The English can be quite formal and stilted. The second type of translation is the dynamic equivalent translation, 
and in dynamic equivalence translations, translators attempt to translate the message or the meaning of the original language words into English words or expressions. It's more of a thought-for-thought -thought translation than a word-for-word -word translation. And so translations like the New International Version and the New Living Translation are dynamic equivalent translations. So, for example, the New Living Translation translates 1 Peter chapter 1 as follows. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. The advantage of dynamic equivalent translations is that they are much more reader-friendly. The disadvantage is that if the translators get the meaning wrong, then that wrong meaning gets perpetuated. The reader assumes the Bible is saying something that it is not saying. So, for example, the 1984 NIV translated Romans 16 and verse 1 as follows. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he ends the letter by saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centria. The word servant, though, is the Greek word diakonos, which is the same as the word deacon. It seems that the translators of the 1984 edition had certain views of women in leadership, and that bias came out in their translation. But in making that interpretive decision, I believe they perpetuated a wrong meaning of the text. That misreading would have been obvious to scholars of the Bible, and it was pointed out in Bible commentaries and scholarly articles, but it wouldn't necessarily have been obvious to the casual reader of the Bible. The 2011 version of the NIV corrected their translation to read, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. This leads to a second problem with dynamic equivalent translations, and that is that if I, as a pastor, keep on having to say the NIV is slightly misleading here, you as my listeners are going to start thinking, well, can I trust the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? One solution would be to read two versions of the Bible together, say the English Standard Version and the New International Version, but that may not be very practical. It may be easier to stick with the NIV alone or the English Standard Version alone and refer to the other one when you get stuck. Just to complicate things even further, you do get paraphrases of the Bible. Sometimes they're called versions of the Bible. Some of you who are older will remember the New Testament in Modern English by J.B. Phillips or Kenneth Baker's The Living Bible. More recently, Eugene Peterson wrote The Message Version. There's a new paraphrase out at the moment called the Passion Translation. Its name is highly unfortunate and problematic because it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase by one man, Brian Simmons. Paraphrases go even further towards interpreting rather than translating the Bible. And they do have some value. For instance, if I preach or teach on Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I'll often quote Eugene Peterson's The Message Version, which reads, So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. 
embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. That obviously replaces the more literal rendering. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Eugene Peterson has explained God's word and given it some practical application in a very memorable way. Or in teaching on the very next verse in Romans 12, I might quote J.B. Phillips' modern English version. Instead of the NIVs do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, Phillips has the helpful phrase, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould. So these paraphrases or versions are helpful in interpretation and application. They often create good poetry or visual pictures, but they are not in any meaningful sense the word of God. They are interpretations, and one should be very careful to look at the character and the theology of the person behind the work, recognize the aims and the objectives of the work, and not claim for these paraphrases any more than they actually are. In fact, were it not for the fact that most of these versions are completely upfront and explain what they're trying to do, they would come perilously close to the warning that we get in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the scroll. Personally, I'm quite disturbed by the plethora of translations of the Bible that are out there at the moment. When I was growing up, you could have the King James Version, which the old people read, the Good News Version, which was for kids and new converts, or the New International Version, which was the one the Apostle Paul read. I had a look at the Bible Gateway site where you can read the Bible online and counted over 40 versions of the Bible. And one of the huge disadvantages of having so many versions is that it seriously undermines Bible memorization. Even last year, when we tried to memorize 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 to 10, I know it in the old New International Version, but there's an updated 2011 edition, and the words are slightly different. In years past, it was much easier to memorize passages because the version you read at home was the same as you heard in church, was the same as you heard in Sunday school, was the same you heard in Holiday Bible Club, so that eventually some of the verses stuck in your memory, and you could quote them. So having so many versions can bring the Bible to life, but it has some real disadvantages too. So recognize what different translations aim to do, recognize the difference between a translation and a paraphrase, and then find one that works for you. I would recommend the New International Version, the Good News Bible, the English Standard Version, or the New Living Translation. And if you're going to study a particular passage, maybe have a look at a couple of translations. We've spent quite a bit of time on this, but let's move on to some of the other tools that can help us to read the Bible. And I'll just mention some of these with a brief description. A Bible handbook is a great tool. It'll give you an introduction to each book of the Bible, who it was written by and when. It'll give you an overview of the book, sometimes chapter by chapter. It'll give you charts, 
showing whereabouts each book fits into the history of the Bible. Uh, it'll give you some good articles about some of the customs of the Bible, give you maps of Israel and the surrounding countries. It'll show you the route of the Exodus or the routes of Paul's various missionary journeys. And it'll give you loads of pictures of biblical places or archaeological discoveries. It really will open up the world of the Bible to you. One of the best and the oldest Bible handbooks is the Lion Handbook to the Bible. A Bible dictionary is a useful tool. It arranges biblical subjects from A to Z. So you might come across the Hittites in your scripture reading and want to know more about them. And so you go to your Bible dictionary and there will be a whole article on the Hittites. Or you might come across the name of Timothy and wonder who he was. And so you look him up in the dictionary. Uh, things like sacrifice or Holy Spirit or altar or temple or torch could all be found in a Bible dictionary. And a really good Bible dictionary would be the New Bible Dictionary, published by IVP. You get Bible encyclopedias too, which are really just very big Bible dictionaries, some of which run to several volumes. As a pastor, I continually use Bible commentaries to aid me in my study and preaching of God's Word. A Bible commentary is a verse-by-verse -verse explanation of God's Word. You get Bible commentaries that cover the entire Bible in one volume. The New Bible Commentary is a really good commentary in that regard. And then you get commentaries that cover just one book. Different commentaries try to do different things, so some commentaries are more scholarly and try to work out the exact meaning of the Greek or Hebrew text. Others are more devotional in nature. They're more meditations on the text and aim to show how the passage relates to similar passages in the Bible and how the passage relates to everyday life. It's quite important to understand what a Bible commentator is trying to do in his or her commentary and to try to find ones from a reputable publishing house or that have a reputable editorial board. The Tyndale Bible Commentary series or the Bible Speaks Today series are very good. Uh, they include a commentary on each and every book of the Old and New Testament. And it's sometimes nice to have them all together on your shelf, all looking the same, although not every commentary in a series is equally good. Its value lies in the skill of the scholar rather than its inclusion in a series. But if you were wanting to study a particular book of the Bible in some depth, you could ask your friendly pastor if he or she would lend you one of their Bible commentaries or could recommend a Bible commentary for you. Another great and easily accessible tool would be a study Bible. The NIV Study Bible is a tried and tested volume. Uh, this was a volume that I bought as a teenager and was probably the very first step on my journey of studying the Bible. The Life Application Study Bible is a good study Bible too. And a study Bible incorporates elements from a Bible handbook, Bible dictionary and Bible commentary. Basically, it's the text of the Bible and underneath would be a very brief commentary giving some explanation of the verses it would also include maps and charts and pictures and would give an introduction to each book. The commentary would be quite concise, but it would be enough to explain most of the tricky terms or passages that you'd come up with in your everyday Bible reading. And it's so useful to have everything all together in one volume. 
a daily devotion like Our Daily Bread or some of the Scripture Union Notes or a devotional on the YouVersion app would be really great in helping you to read and understand the Bible. These Bible reading notes or devotions normally take a short passage of Scripture, sometimes just even one verse. They give a bit of background to the verses, maybe use a story to illustrate the main point, and then give a few possible applications of the verse to everyday life. They're extremely helpful, although they do only take very short sections of the Bible. Uh, some of them overcome that problem, though, by also including a Bible in the year plan in the margin, so that you do get through the Bible over time, and you also have a more in-depth look at a short piece of the scriptures. The wonderful thing is that many of these resources are now available for free on the internet, although do be careful. There is an awful lot of rubbish out there, if that's not too blunt and condemnatory. There's a website called the thebluelettabible.org that has a wealth of material. You can access Bible commentaries and Bible dictionaries and maps and timelines and devotions. You could easily get lost in there, but it's a great resource. We've covered some fairly intimidating tools today, but just coming back down to basics for a moment, a notebook and pen would be really great tools in reading and studying God's Word just reading a passage of scripture and answering a few questions for yourself. Many years ago, I came across these questions, which are helpful to ask and answer after reading God's word. Is there a sin to avoid in this passage? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an example to follow? Is there a command to obey? Is there knowledge to store up in my heart and mind? What does this passage teach me about God's character or his work in the world? Is there an application or action to follow through with after studying this passage? Just to say that all of the tools that we've looked at so far can be enhanced by reading the Bible with others. Church attendance is difficult at the moment, but if you're not part of a church already, do find a congregation where God's word is preached. Look for a church where they take whole books of the Bible or where they take sections of longer books of the Bible and where they carefully explain both what it meant and what it means. Or join a Bible study group where the focus is on studying God's word. Or if you've chosen a Bible reading app or a devotion for yourself, invite a friend to do the same reading program and meet up occasionally to discuss what you're reading and learning. And last, but by no means least, we need to pray. Before we open up God's word, we need to ask that God will speak to us through his word, that he would protect us from error, and that he would keep us from the greatest error, which is to be merely a hearer of God's word, and not to put it into practice in our own lives. The psalmist prays in Psalm 25, Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. We've looked at a number of things today, and we've covered a lot of ground. As we close, though, let me mention a vital element. It is possible to enjoy studying God's word 
and not enjoy God himself. I enjoy studying and looking things up and gaining insight into God's word and being moved by what I learn, but it is possible to enjoy studying the word of God more than enjoying a relationship with God himself. In the Alpha Course video on the Bible, Pastor Nicky Gumbel gives a great illustration that warns against this danger. And let me tweak his illustration somewhat. I drive a fairly modest Nissan Lavina car. But just imagine for a moment, let your imagination run wild. Supposing I was to get a new car. Supposing I was to get a brand new Nissan GTR at a mere 2,435,000 rand. The car is delivered to my front door and I go out in great excitement. I look in the glove compartment and there is the Nissan manual. And it's a beautiful, glossy manual. And I say, wow, that's fantastic. I go inside and I get out my felt pen and I start underlining all the bits that are really exciting in the Nissan manual. And then there are bits that I really love and I start learning those bits off by heart so that I can quote them. Maybe I cut out little sections and I put them up on the mirror so that I can look at them when I'm shaving. And the particular parts that I enjoy, I ask one of our musicians to set to music so that we can sing those bits. And I give expositions about tire oppression. And I think, well, this is so great. I love this manual. Maybe I'll join the Nissan Club and meet with other people who love the manual. Maybe I'll learn Japanese so I can study it in its original language. Now, that's all great, but there's not much point if I don't get in the car and drive it. Because the point of the manual is to help you drive the car. And the point of this book is to help you get into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and to enjoy that relationship. Remember what Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. May God richly bless you as you read and study his word to you this week. Amen.